Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What is the importance that forgetting has played throughout human history? What will be the effects on society, relationships, and humanity now that so many aspects of our lives are digitally preserved? Victor Mayer Schoenberger, author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age, and our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious has some insights into these questions. He argues that the capacity for eternal memory can have unanticipated and often unwanted consequences. The potentially humiliating content on Facebook, forever enshrined in cyberspace, and Google's search memory of the content and time of all our online searches may in the future reveal portions of our past we have entirely forgotten and would wish everyone else had too. In these two Radio Curious visits with Victor Mayer Schoenberger, we explore some of the ways in which our personal information, data, conversations, and experiences are forgotten by us as individuals. We also consider the future potential effects on society of digitally preserved information, as well as the consequences of remembering what is sometimes best forgotten. Victor Mayer Schoenberger spoke with us by phone from his then home in Singapore on January 4, 2010, and began our conversation by describing how the digital age is shifting the brain's balance between remembering and forgetting. perhaps one of the most profound shifts in recent times. For most of human history, humans by default forgot most of what they experienced in their daily lives. Uh, it took an effort for them to remember, uh, to uh, keep and hold on to experiences, ideas that they felt were important to them. Uh, and it was very easy for them to forget because forgetting was built into them, built into biologically, built into our brains. The digital age has reversed that default. Today, it is very easy for us to remember. In fact, it has become the default, and forgetting has gotten uh, expensive. However, what is remembered is what has been converted into a digital form of preservation. Uh, our conversation, for instance, I'm recording on a computer and it will be on our website. But in an unrecorded conversation, what we say to each other would not necessarily be remembered by default in that fashion. That is absolutely right. This is another problem of the digital age in the sense that what is remembered is not a comprehensive record of our lives, but uh, is biased towards what can be digitally recorded and then later digitally accessed. So what we remember today, what future generations will know about us, is not what we decide we want to have remembered, but what the digital devices that we use today 
uh, by default uh, can capture and remember. So oral conversations that we have will remain ephemeral, will not be captured, uh, while what we have as a permanent record is what digital devices capture for us, mostly written text, but more and more video and audio as well. Well, then, the common experience of having a private conversation goes by the wayside, and what we remember is determined by those who choose to submit it for capture, submissions of what somebody might buy on the Internet from Amazon, for example, or submit in a blog. That is true, and a lot of times we don't even know. It's not clear to us and transparent to us that something is being captured. For example, search engines, including most popularly Google, capture every search query that is sent to them and also remember every search result users click on. And for quite a number of months, they associate a personal identifiable data with that so they can trace it back to a particular human being. That means that uh, Google knows more about our search behavior and our search patterns that we ourselves remember. Google receives about a billion-plus search requests a day and still remembers every one of them nine months later. In fact, they remember every one of them years and years later. They just forget, quote-unquote, some of the personal identifiers, which means that Google knows and remembers stuff that most people don't understand, don't realize Google actually has the capacity to remember. You say they remember it personally to uh, you or me or anybody who uses a computer. How is that? I can understand how they remember it to a specific computer, but how about a public computer? Well, there's a number of ways by which this can be done. First, Google, through its Google Mail services and Google Calendar services and all the other services that they offer, including Google Docs, asks members to log in. And when you remain logged in and then search, they know who you are. So that's the most easy and clearest. But even if you don't do that, and if you use a public computer, just by the way you search, by the cookies you have, by the IP address you use, by how you search, they are able to link back to you relatively well. There is some uncertainty on the edges, but by and large, most people keep using their own computers, whether they're laptops or smartphones uh, or their desktop computers from home to search um, and don't shift and change computers a lot of times. So in that sense, even if you're not logged into Google services, Google still has a very good way of finding out who you are. There is a wonderful little vignette for the power of search to identify human beings. A few years back, AOL, a totally different service, um, published a couple of hundred thousand search records, and they said that they had taken away all of the personal identifiers. And journalists, I believe it was from the New York Times, looked at the search records, and just by the way 
the search records were revealing um, the demographic information, um, tried to identify a human being, and it was actually relatively easy. He could identify uh, uh, one woman from Atlanta, Georgia, and he called her up and said, do you know that AOL just released your search records? And they said that they took away the personal information, but I was able to identify you, and now I know what you searched. Are you comfortable with that? And of course, she wasn't, surprisingly. And I think that is probably true for the vast variety, a vast majority of folks. That lack of comfort is something that most people are unaware that exists. I'd like to direct our conversation, if I may, towards what happened about 100 years ago when the default for transportation was to go by foot or go by horse. And then it shifted to go by an automobile, auto in that it's self-mobile, gasoline-powered. And the change that has come throughout our world in the past 100 years. Taking the concept of the inversion of remembering versus forgetting, what predictions do you see in 2050 to 100 years of that inversion on the human brain, the human society? Well, when we look at the importance of forgetting uh, in a society and in individuals, uh, the importance of our capacity to let bygone be bygone, um, the thought that comes immediately to our mind is the importance of forgetting as a measure, as a way to ensure privacy, individual privacy. And authors around the world over the last maybe two decades have predicted that if we take away our ability to forget we create a society that will behave like what Jeremy Bentham called the panopticon, basically a prison in which the prisoners must assume that they're constantly watched, although they don't know whether they're being watched or not. And because they have to assume that they're being watched all the time, they behave accordingly. And so in a panopticon, Bentham said, in a panoptic prison, uh, a very small number of guards can control a very large number of prisoners, and they all behave because they have to assume that they are constantly being watched, so to self-censor themselves. Um, and uh, authors uh, around the world um, have argued that in Internet times, uh, we uh, have moved towards a global panopticum in which everybody on the Internet can watch everybody else, everybody else's YouTube videos and blog entries and Flickr photographs and Facebook status messages and so forth. Uh, so we have created a global information panopticum. But there is a wrinkle to that, I think, and the wrinkle is that because the data remains accessible, not just for weeks, but for months and years, even decades, uh, we have not only created a global panopticum, we have created what I call a temporal panopticum. That is a capacity to not just watch in the present, but to watch what people have done in the past. And so if people realize that, they become self-censoring. 
President Obama in September advised school children to watch themselves, what they say or do on the Internet, because it might come to haunt them in years or decades into the future when they apply for a job, for example. Which means basically that he told them, be careful and self-censor what you do on the Internet. Now that's helpful advice, except that it means that if we self-censor, it impoverishes the tools of communications that we have available to us, and it impoverishes what I believe is an important element of our society, namely robust public debate. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Victor Mayer Schoenberger from his home in Singapore. He's the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age, and we're discussing what can be anticipated in the next 20, 50, or 100 years. Now that the concept of remembering versus forgetting has been inverted, Victor, you raised some interesting issues there. Self-censor impoverishes what you mentioned, but also creativity. That is true. because, And that leads me to a second, perhaps to me, even more troubling challenge of comprehensive memory. Privacy is an important element. But when I went into this research, I discovered that our ability to forget actually um, plays an even more important and central role into our ability to make sense of our existence, of reality, of life. Uh, Because humans, by forgetting, also are able to abstract and generalize from their experiences, something that they keep uh, and hold on to into the future. And if we lose our ability to forget, we also lose our ability to generalize and to abstract to see the forest rather than just trees. And if we stop having the ability to forget, then we might forever be steeped into the details of our past rather than be able to rise above that and to act in the present and to look into the future. Unlearning forgetting is centrally important, an important element to creativity, to the ability to move forward, to have new thoughts and new ideas. And if we do away with the ability to forget through digital tools, for example, of remembering, then we impede upon our capacity as individuals as well as society to innovate, to be creative, and to move forward. And that, to me, is the second and more troubling challenge that comprehensive digital memory poses. Can you give us some examples of how having access or the inability to forget impedes us? Yes. There's a very intriguing story emerging from cognitive science through the study of what is called comprehensive digital memory in some people who cannot forget. There's a woman in California by the name of A.J. who, for biological reasons, it seems, has difficulties forgetting. So you can ask her about a particular day 30 years ago, 
and she is able to tell you when she woke up, what she did in the morning, what was on television, who called, and what was on the newspaper for every day the last 30 years. So she has difficulties forgetting. Now, we would assume that she would enjoy that capacity. After all, she knew exactly where she left her car keys, parked her car. But the truth of the fact is that she is not seeing her ability to comprehensively remember her past as a benefit, but as a curse. For her, all of her past failed decisions are constantly present, and as she describes it, inhibit and limit and constrain her ability to act in time, that is to act and decide in the present. And so an, uh, an ever more overbearing past then limits her ability to live and be able to act in the present. And this is what we may face in a world in which the digital tools around us by default record most of our utterances and keep that record for many years and decades available, not just to us, but potentially to the rest of the world. Well, considering the malleability of the human brain in relationship to perhaps fax machines, 25 years ago they weren't available as they are now, and now they're falling aside to being able to send a document on a computer, perhaps with a confirmed signature. Yes. Do you see ways of a malleability of the human brain in the future so that digital memory can be separated from the ability to forget and notwithstanding that we have access to all this information, we still may be able to make rational decisions? You know, this is a very important element uh, of the equation because our human brain is beautiful and malleable in the sense that we can adjust our preferences and values in fact, we do that all the time. Over time, our preferences and values do change. So 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we all held different values. We were much less concerned about equality or about gender parity, universal suffrage, and so forth. Today, we have different values, and we cherish these values very much. So the question is, can we have a value adjustment that lets us deal with comprehensive digital memory, just like we had a value adjustment that lets us deal with equality or general suffrage and so forth. The problem is that comprehensive digital memory confronts us not with a need to adjust a value, that is, to, to devalue the past or whatever, but it confronts us with the need to adjust the way by which humans process and weigh information. And that is much harder to do. We can adjust values, but it is extremely hard for us human beings to rewire our brains so that we process information differently. And so I don't see a, a fast-paced way for us humans to adjust quickly to a world of comprehensive digital memory. This rewiring that would be necessary to do that would take, I believe, many generations and hundreds of years. That presents a pretty huge conundrum. It does. And yet I believe that the key to solve the riddle 
is with us as well. Because what is eminently malleable, much more malleable than the human brain, is in fact the digital devices that surround us. So what I suggest in the book, what we need to do is to revive the importance of forgetting and build forgetting into the digital devices that we have and that we utilize, much like it is built into our human brain. Victor Mayer Schoenberger, author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. Let's hold off, if we can, for our second interview, a second conversation about how we can adjust the digital devices so that we can enhance forgetting, which to some may be an oxymoron. And stay for a little bit with the way we process information now and the importance of forgetting. And in doing so, I'd like to reference what you mentioned going back about 500 years to when the Catholic Church had significant control over written manuscripts— 50 or so years before Gutenberg created the movable type printing press, Cambridge University Library in England, you mentioned, had 122 books. Within 50 years after the invention of the movable type press, there were about 8 million. And you conclude that the control over memory was slipping from the church's hands. It seemed like that was almost an equally significant shift of the control of knowledge that we are now entering into. Yes, I'd say that's true. The Catholic Church, for quite a number of centuries, held almost total control over a lot of the recorded information in the Western world uh, at that time, and that slipped from its hands around the time of the introduction of the movable type and the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. Today, we may be witnessing a similar shift in the sense that control over recorded information is slipping from the hands of us individuals and might be re-centralized, might be moving towards a relatively small number of organizations or institutions. Just imagine the uh, enormous amount of information that Google, for example, is controlling through Google Books, the search and data that they have, the control over YouTube and uh, the photographs through Picasa, and other tools that they have available through the control over mail, uh, through Google Mail, and so forth. So there is a re-centralization, if you want, of control. And that control is no longer in the lap of the person who sits next to someone to whom they're showing a photo or sent to them privately through the postal system. Not at all. In fact, what happens uh, if we if I may use the term privatize and re-centralize information control is that if we fail to remember in our brains what happened in our past, we go back to our digital records, we revisit the digital documents, the photographs, the videos that we have kept and stored. But we keep and store this not anymore in the future in our computers, 
but in centralized computers of large information providers like Google. That means that Google now controls the ability to not just supply us with that information, but to also potentially alter that information and therefore alter human memory. Well, that's the conversation of our next visit with Victor Mayer Schoenberger on Radio Curious. And before we close this one, Victor, can you tell us about a eureka moment or an aha moment that's come to you recently? Yes, I was on on book tour promoting uh, Delete uh, in the United States. And I was doing a radio interview like this. And I was, of course, always curious about stories of memory and so forth. And there was this woman calling in and telling me about her inability to move on, restart a new life after having done some stupid things in her youth because her mugshot from having been in prison suddenly reappeared on the Internet through a new commercial service that puts online all the mugshots of prisoners in the state of California, you know, way back, uh, 10, 20 years back. And when she told me the story and then she posed a question of saying, so what am I going to do about this? How can I protect myself from my past, from a person that has long vanished? I was looking at it and I said, God, I have never thought about that particular side of it. And there is another whole dimension of the problem that I have completely missed and that might be even more troubling. And so I had this moment, uh, I guess, of revelation um, that I probably need to write a sequel to delete. And can you tell us about an interesting book that you would recommend? Yes, I would very much recommend what is called Collected Stories or Collected Fiction of Jorge Luis Borges, a um, fiction writer, a short story writer from Argentina who in the 60s, 70s wrote wonderful uh, short stories that encapsulate the paradoxes and complexities of modern lives. Uh, He has a wonderful story about memory and remembering but he also has other interesting stories, paradox conundrums, these paradox questions permeate his short stories. Uh, they are wonderful vignettes, and I highly recommend them. Well, Victor Mayer Schoenberger, author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age, thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much, Barry, for having me. Victor Mayer Schoenberger is the author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. The book that Victor Mayer Schoenberger recommends is Collected Fictions by Jose Luis Borges. This interview was recorded on January 4, 2010. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621 
5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.